Part two, chapter eighteen of Garcia Moreno by Gustin Berth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. The Assassin Viteri, eighteen sixty six. The new president inaugurated his career by an admirable speech against the revolutionists. These demagogues, he exclaimed, have made continual efforts to overturn all order and justice, and it is only at the price of the most heroic sacrifices that the preceding government has been able to save the conservative principles which are so justly dear to the immense majority of the nation. The liberty of which the radicals boast is simply licensed under the name of liberty, borrowed from the revolutionary theories of France, which ends in their tearing one another in pieces, and in the annihilation of all order and peace. Unfortunately, President Carrion, though an honest and religious man, was entirely wanting in the firmness and decision needful for the difficult position in which he found himself. Hoping to conciliate the Liberal Party, he confided the direction of affairs to his home minister, Manuel Bustamante, who was well known for his hostility to Garcia Moreno. The only person who really checked the proceedings of the radicals was Garcia Moreno himself, so that they determined to get rid of him by the dagger of an assassin. At the beginning of 1866, all eyes were turned towards Chile, which country was at that moment at war with Spain, who had blocked the port of Valparaiso and bombarded the town. All the republics of South America rose up at this news, and Garcia Moreno at the head of the patriots declared that the moment was come when the peril of one becomes a menace to the existence of all. A treaty was accordingly concluded between Ecuador, Peru, Chile, and Bolivia, which stipulated that each would arm in defense of their rights. Every preparation was made for war, for Spain was blocking Caleo and menaced Guayaquil. General Darquia undertook the defense of the latter city, and Garcia Moreno was employed to take the command of the army. This idea exasperated the radicals to such a degree that Carrion, always hoping to steer a middle course between the two opposing parties, decided to send him as minister to Chile, in order to conclude a commercial treaty with that country, but in reality in hopes of appeasing the revolutionary camp. The revolutionists were rejoiced. Not only the government lost its firmest supporter, but this voyage to Chile would give them an opportunity of getting rid of their mortal enemy. Already they had tried to assassinate him at Carolina, a country house near Quito, to which he had retired, but the remorse of one of the conspirators had obliged them to postpone their design. Garcia Marina was to embark at Guayaquil on the 27th of June and stop a few hours at Lima to confer with the President Prado. The week before his departure he was warned that he would be assassinated on the road, and that at Lima he would only be welcomed by revolvers and daggers. He knew well what he had to expect from these masters in crime, but he belonged to a race of brave men who trust in God and never draw back before any danger. He left Guayaquil accordingly, accompanied only by a secretary, D. Pablo Herrera, and Don Ignacio de Alcazar, a member of the legation. Herrera had his son with him, a boy of fourteen, and Garcia Marina, a little niece of eight years old, who was bound for Valparaiso. That was all his escort. The steamer reached Caleo on the 2nd of July. Garcia Marina instantly took the train, which arrived at Lima at noon. Ignacio de Alcazar was the first to leave the carriage, to speak to the attaché of the embassy, who was come to receive them. Garcia Marina followed him, and then turned round to help his little niece to get down to the platform. At that moment, a man named Viteri, a relation of Urbina's, dashed up to him, calling him a robber and assassin, and fired two balls at his head. 
The balls pierced through his hat, and quick as lightning, Garcia Marina seized the arm of the assassin, and thus turned away the third ball. A friend of his, D. Felix Luque, rushed forward to help him, but was himself wounded in the hand by an accomplice of Viteri's. Ignacio de Alcazar then dashed upon the assassin and battered his head with the barrel of his revolver. This horrible scene lasted only an instant. The police came too late, as usual, but Ignacio pointed Viteri out to them, who was again aiming a pistol at the head of Garcia Moreno. The murderer was seized, and Garcia Moreno gave up his revolver to the prefect fully loaded, he having had the magnanimity not to blow out the brains of his enemy, but only to turn away the weapon which menaced his life. The news of this horrible attempt flew through the town. The President of the Republic hastened to send his own carriage with orders to bring Garcia Moreno to the palace, where he had been wounded, both in the forehead and the hand. He traversed the capital amidst a crowd of sympathizers. At the palace he was received with every demonstration of respect by the President Prado, who did not know how to express his regret sufficiently for what had happened. He threw the assassin into prison, and ordered him to be brought before the judges without delay. Then was shown the infamous character of the infernal band which governs the world. The attempt at assassination was made in public. A host of witnesses gave evidence of the facts, but it was an assassination ordered by the Freemasons. The judges were all members of the lodges and friends of Urbina's, the consequence of which was that they delayed the trial till the public excitement was over and the ocular witnesses dispersed. Then Viteri, with the most barefaced audacity, declared that the attack had been made by Garcia Marina himself. To make a long story short, the assassin was acquitted amidst the cheers of the sects, and to the everlasting disgrace of the judges. The shameful mockery of justice excited the utmost indignation in Quito. The President Carrion wrote a letter of sympathy to Garcia Marino, which was seconded by Bustamante, but no effort was made to insist on reparation or on the punishment of the murderer. Garcia Marino, who was above both the insolence of his accusers and the ingratitude and indifference of the Ecuador government, went on his way to Chile in spite of fresh warnings of attempted assassination at Valparaiso, which would undoubtedly await him. On the contrary, the President of Chile and all the most distinguished persons in the capital received the illustrious ambassador with the respect due not only to his high office, but to his glorious character. The papers had been full of his heroic struggles against the revolution, his extraordinary bravery, which had won the admiration of the whole world, his constant friendliness towards Chile during his presidency, and now the brutal attempt at his assassination in Lima, so that even before his arrival he had won every heart and enlisted every sympathy. The speech he made at his official reception confirmed all these favorable impressions, and made the Chileans understand that they had not only a hero before them, but a real friend. After enumerating the various ways in which the union of the two countries could be made thoroughly effective and permanent, he added, In spite of our commercial interests, which combine so admirably, one region producing what its neighbor requires, we have hitherto put every sort of obstacle in the way, by means of custom-houses and tariffs, of the free exchange of our products, and thus paralyzed the full scope of our industries. But now the day has come when all these inventions and an egoistical policy will have been proved to be useless and pernicious. A common peril has revealed to us the advantages of union. As the thunder and lightning serve to purify the air, so the unjust aggression of Spain will have given us the cohesion, which until now was the only thing wanting. He succeeded in his mission in a wonderful manner. Diplomatic, consular, and postal conventions, treaties of alliance, commerce, and navigation, 
a better understanding of international relations, all was regulated to the greatest advantage of the contracting parties. More than this, during the six months that he passed in Chile, Garcia Moreno had the opportunity of entering into relations with all the most illustrious men in the country. Everywhere his deep science, his noble character, and the union of eminent gifts and qualities which distinguished him above all others, roused the profoundest esteem and admiration. In the learned societies where he was entreated to speak, he perfectly amazed his hearers by his vast knowledge of so many different subjects, and especially by a system of social regeneration based on the laws of the Catholic Church. The Chilean society conceived the greatest reverence for this great man, who only too happy to meet with Christian hearts, capable of understanding and loving him, was the more attracted towards them, as the false liberalism of his own country had so often disheartened him and left him unprepared to meet with such real sympathy and appreciation. Later on, he never spoke of this journey to Chile without emotion. This was the result of the last and newest radical conspiracy against him. The name of Garcia Moreno only shone with a brighter light throughout America, where it became well understood that if all the fury of Freemasons and revolutionists were directed towards the ex-president, it was because he was the only man of whom they feared the power. The events we are about to record will prove that their instincts were not at fault. End of Part 2, Chapter 18